All right, well, it's good to be back. Um, I think Christian mentioned during uh, the opening prayer that last week I was dead. Um, this week I'm alive because I've resurrected. No, I just got better from, um, recovered from a cold. And so hopefully my voice will last and the Lord will be gracious to sustain me. But welcome to Praxis. It is a, a joy and privilege to be able to fellowship together, to study God's word, to sharpen and encourage one another with scripture that we may honor Christ. And as a single young adults group, um, we have been studying the book of Ecclesiastes. So we're gonna get to it. If you have your copy of God's word, you can turn in them to Ecclesiastes chapter three. We're gonna be finishing off uh, the remainder of this chapter. And our passage tonight is Ecclesiastes chapter three, verses 16 to 22. So I will read our passage for us and then we will pray and get going. So Ecclesiastes chapter three, beginning in verse 16, this is the word of God. Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness. And in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked for there is a time for every matter and for every work. I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them, that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beast is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath and man has no advantage over the beast for all is vanity. All go to one place. All are from dust and to dust all return. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth. So I saw that there is nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work for that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? Let's pray. God, we approach and we do so with reverence, acknowledging that we need you. We need your word, we need your grace, and you are so kind to impart it upon us that we can study scripture, that we can be stretched and challenged. Uh, Lord, we know that there are difficult things in your word, but it is for our good. Difficult, not merely because it may be hard to understand, but difficult to receive because it wounds our pride. And we pray for humility. We pray that we would be malleable in your hands, that you would show us what it means to live faithfully to you in this world, to steward well the life we have, this life under the sun, that we might not waste it, but glorify Christ and be joyful as you have prescribed. And so use your word to edify, to stir up our souls, to rejoice in Jesus. We pray these things in his name, amen. Now, recently I introduced my kids to Studio Ghibli, that Japanese animation, um, and they produce some strange, unconventional movies. And I figured for my innocent, naive children, I'd start them off with something easy, you know, like child-friendly. So I showed them The Grave of the Fireflies. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I obviously didn't 
because I'm not a terrible father. Um, I won't spoil the story for you if you haven't seen it, but Grave of the Fireflies is a very heavy and sad movie. And actually, it'd probably be, my guess, the preacher's favorite uh, movie since it deals with war, injustice, death, some of the very issues we'll tackle in our passage. But again, don't worry, my kids didn't watch Grave of the Fireflies. Instead, they enjoyed Ponyo and Totoro, movies that are more lighthearted, fun. And then after, when I tucked them in bed, I read them Cormac McCarthy's The Road. No, I'm just kidding. If you know that book, that is also a very depressing, dystopian read. But as a parent, I am shielding them for now, but hopefully not forever. You know, they're not currently not at an age where they can handle more mature and difficult material. Yeah, it did get me thinking. You know, we can enjoy happy movies like Totoro multiple times, but we're probably good with seeing something like Grave of the Fireflies just once, unless you're weird and really messed up. Because too many disturbing movies is just too disturbing. Now we gravitate towards fairy tales, flicks where justice prevails or the good guys win in the end. In fact, if the story tells us how great we are too, then we're really roped in, right? We're cheering along with Forrest Gump or Rocky when they overcome extreme odds to succeed. We're intrigued by goodwill hunting and how Will Hunting turns a corner, unlocking his potential, going from a janitor to a math whiz. And our society gobbles this stuff up. I mean, let's be honest, we do as well. Feeling good, that's always on the menu, not being down and out. And we have inspirational quotes, trite sayings like, shoot for the moon, and if you miss, you'll still be among the stars. Or you can do whatever you set your mind to. Sure, we've all heard that. But these cliches, these platitudes just aren't true. Sometimes you shoot for the moon only to crater straight into the ground. You can't do whatever you set your mind to or manifest your reality. We talk about overcoming any obstacle and reaching our full potential because the opposite doesn't sit well with us. We don't want to be reminded to be reminded of our limits because our limits remind us of our weakness, of our mortality. Look, ignorance may be bliss, but it's still ignorance. It only keeps you safe for so long, but once the bub bubble pops, you're in for a rude awakening. And the preacher of Ecclesiastes well, he refuses to beat around the bush. He refuses to sugarcoat the realities of life under the sun. The book of Ecclesiastes is both devastating and refreshing because it's honest. The preacher tackles ultimate big questions and searches for meaning. And we've seen in his quest, he's already come up empty after exploring knowledge, pleasure, and work. And tonight what he's going to do is he's gonna dispel any illusion we might have about life itself and limits. Not to make us all miserable and mopey, but so that we can actually embrace and enjoy life with its limits. Now our passage is really a continuation of last week's. 
And we can see this from how verse 16 starts with a moreover. So the preacher is expanding upon what he's just covered in Ecclesiastes 3, 1 to 15. That as human beings, we exist within time. We are subject to various seasons and circumstances. We can't snap our fingers to fast forward past winter and welcome the sun in summer vibes. We don't have the prerogative to choose whether we live in a time of prosperity or during a world war. Much of our lives is predetermined for us. We have no say as to the generation, culture, ethnicity, family, zip code, or socioeconomic status we're born into. It is appointed, orchestrated by the one who exists outside of time and is sovereign over all seasons. And accepting that reality puts us in our place that for all of our advancements, skills, ingenuity, even at our very best, we are still at best creatures. God is our creator. And tonight the preacher revisits two areas where we feel this gulf, this discrepancy the most. From his poem at the beginning of Ecclesiastes 3, he now hones in on two aspects of life. We have the hardest time giving up and relinquishing control, justice and death. The preacher camps out on these two issues to teach us about our limits, about life under the sun and the one who reigns on high. Here's the key idea. Our limitations as human beings are meant to cultivate humility in our hearts and a hope in God. Let's start then with our first point, that in due time, justice will be served. In due time, justice will be served. Look again at verse 16. The preacher says, Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness. And in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. Now, let me ask first, what was your first word as a kid? Now, I'm guessing for some of you, it was mama. For others of you, it was dada, right? My parents told me my first word was calculator. Um, obviously, you don't believe me, and that's fine. Um, it was actually button because I'm not a genius. But whether you remember your first word or not, most of us learned a phrase early on in life. It's three words. It's not fair. Maybe the first sentence for many of you here. Whether it's because a sibling received a larger slice of cake or a classmate got away with cheating on a test, you don't have to live long to encounter injustice in the world. There's something intrinsic about injustice that is troubling to us. As one theologian notes, sad endings we can handle, but not unjust ones. Suffering makes us sad, but injustice makes us mad. And that resonates with us. That though older, we still feel a level of outrage when things don't appear to be fair or right. We see that if we're passed over for the promotion and it goes to the undeserving coworker. We're upset when the jerk is dating, but we're still alone. We don't appreciate being a faithful friend only to be betrayed. But guess what? That's life in a broken world. 
And I think we get that to a certain degree. Yet if there's any place we assume or expect that justice should be upheld and exercised, well, it's in the places that were created and designed for it, right? Or in the verbiage of the preacher, the place of justice, the place of righteousness. But when he looks there, what does he find? Even in these places, wickedness is rampant. Evil flourishes. Place of justice is referring to a legal setting. As Israel's king, Solomon, the preacher, he's also part of the system. Think of courtrooms, judges, lawyers, civic uh, servants like mayors and police officers. They are to be fair, to keep the law and enforce justice. But who hasn't seen a cop blazing down the freeway just because they can? Or who hasn't heard about corrupt politicians abusing their power just to get ahead? These days, it's so common, it's so normal, we're jaded. I mean, do you really think everyone in jail is actually guilty? Do you believe everyone acquitted is truly innocent? Place of righteousness is exhibit B. Religious institutions that are supposed to be concerned with morality, doing what is right. And as Israel's spiritual leader, Solomon, the preacher, has a hand in this as well. Think of temples, churches, pastors, and nonprofits. And while there are many glowing examples, godly elders, congregations, corporations doing what's honorable and good, we're also familiar with the blemishes. The disqualified pastor caught in adultery, nonprofits embezzling money. It doesn't matter the place, wickedness is everywhere because people are everywhere. Sin is the problem and it cuts through the heart of every person. We call this depravity. Survey life under the sun, all the cruelty and unfairness, and it leads us to a sobering conclusion. Perfect justice, perfect justice is impossible in an imperfect world. So now what? Are we supposed to vocalize our frustrations and advocate for change? You know, champion the cause of justice? Are we to shrug our shoulders indifferent because what can we really do? Well, here's how the preacher responds. Verse 17, I said in my heart, God, God will judge the righteous and the wicked for there is a time for every matter and for every work. So the preacher looks all around him at all this wickedness surrounding him until it forces him to gaze up. Justice may not be fully or finally found under the sun, but it does not escape the purview of God. He has appointed a time for every matter, for every work. And it may not be according to our schedule, our preference, but in due time, justice will be served. Do you follow what the preacher is doing? He applies his theology. 
He takes what he has unpacked in the first half of Ecclesiastes 3 to address the problems that life presents in the second half of Ecclesiastes 3. Since the times are seasonal, it means even injustice, it's temporary. It will, it has to come to an end. Since everything under the sun is appointed by God, it means everything under the sun will have an appointment with God. That every injustice will be accounted for and judged by him. You see, practice in this life, God doesn't promise that we won't be unfairly treated by our bosses or that all of our relationships will be equitable. He doesn't guarantee that our landlord won't try to rip us off or every situation we encounter will be absent of injustice. What God does vow is that he will eventually make things right. There will be a final reckoning. And that's what we take to the bank. We are finite, immoral creatures. Justice will elude us. And in that regard, it is vanity. Doesn't mean we shouldn't care or pursue what's right. It just means we need to be reasonable with our expectations, with what can be accomplished under the sun. Unrighteous people are always going to struggle with righteousness. But listen, God is not like us. The infinite God of the universe is thrice holy. He will judge righteously because he is righteous. What's the takeaway? It's in your notes. Be hopeful. Be hopeful. Since nothing is forgotten or missed by God, we can take to heart that God will right every wrong. The rape victim will receive the justice they deserve. Corruption will one day be fully purged. No criminal will go unpunished. No offense, big or small, committed against us will go unnoticed. No one might see, but God does. And every single injustice will have its day in his court. So the implication is we don't have to be racked with anxiety over sleazy politics or unfair work conditions. We don't have to lose sleep and rant and rage like our coworkers because we have a God who is sovereign. We can turn the other cheek and refrain from dishing it back because God will get the last word. As the apostle Paul declares in Romans 12, 19, says, beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Yes, grieve properly. Stand up for what's right and true. But always, listen, always in a faithful, gracious manner. With a demeanor that reflects our hope is not in having everything restored and fair here on earth, life under the sun. No, our hope is in the righteous God who judges. And we know this because this is our hope not only for wrongs done to us, but for the wrongs we do to others. Because what can we say, even as Christians, when we're called to account? 
Our hope is still in God. Our plea is Jesus Christ who has borne our guilt. He's condemned in our place so that we might be declared innocent. You see, whether on the cross or on judgment day, in due time, justice will be served. Next, the preacher shifts from the issue of morality to now this issue of mortality. Our second point, in due time, death will come. In due time, death will come. The preacher proclaims this in verse 18. He says, I said in my heart, with regard to the children of men, that God is testing them, that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. The test that the preacher is conducting here has less to do with pass or fail and more to do with discovery, like taking something through the fire to discern what it is made up of. And this test is not for God's benefit, but for ours, as the text mentions, that they may see. Now see what? What's the hypothesis? Well, look there in that verse, that they themselves are but beasts. Now we sort of understand this. These days we will still apply that word beast to each other. Sometimes I'll call Everett, my son, a beast because that fool just eats and eats, right? He's a miniature cow with multiple stomachs, uh, a little beast of the field as we read in the book of Genesis. Or dudes might try to hype each other up with this kind of language. You might tell someone who's buff like Sam Lin, you're a beast, right? <laughs> because he possesses that much brute strength. He's embarrassed, but really he's like, He's like, all right, you guys noticed. <laughs> but guys will toss around beast as a praise. Now a disclaimer, don't call any of the girls beast, no matter how strong they are. I don't care how much you intend it as a compliment, it will not land well. Now, the comparison the preacher is making is not one of diet or muscle, but death. Just peek ahead to verse 19 and it discloses what we have in common, what we share with the beast, this experience of dying, mortality. Obviously some caveats are in order. Solomon is not denying how human beings are created in the image of God. Yes, we are assigned a unique place in creation with dignity and worth. But at the same time, he's cautioning us. We shouldn't think too highly of ourselves. We're still creatures. As I was preparing, it reminds me of Brian Scalabrini. Do you guys know who Brian Scalabrini is? He's this guy who used to play in the NBA and he got clowned on because he wasn't amazing. You know, he wasn't your prototypical baller. So they called him White Mamba in mockery. And Scalabrini was this bulky 6'9 white redhead without the flair, without the athletic abilities of other NBA superstars. And so he would finish games with rather pedestrian stat lines, like two points, one rebound, and a few turnovers. And fans just loved piling on him to the point that they got delusional. They started to think that they could hold a candle next to Brian Scalabrini. Well, he wasn't having any of it, so he pushed back. And Scalabrini is famous for the line, I'm closer to LeBron James than you are to me. And he backed his talk. He would invite and challenge amateurs and former college basketball players to compete against him one-on-one. -on -one. And without fail, Scalabrini would destroy them. 
He would use his size and skill to demolish his opponents, crushing them 11 to two, 11 to zero. And people were so used to seeing Scalabrini struggle on TV that they had assumed that he was one of them, mediocre in basketball. And then they played him and saw the chasm between your average Joe and your professional athlete. And I think we need to be careful of making the same mistake, the wrong assumptions when it comes to God. We're so used to, we're so accustomed to the incredible progress we have made as a species, as a nation, as individuals, and the glowing ways that the, the Bible speaks about us that we can mistakenly assume we're super special. And certainly, there's a kernel of truth there. But caveats aside, what's featured in our text is not how extraordinary we are, but rather how ordinary, how mundane. The preacher is serving us some humble pie. He's telling us we're more like the cattle we chop into steaks and the domesticated pets we care for than almighty God himself. That's the message the preacher is sending here. He wants to deflate our ego, to knock us down a couple rungs so we feel how fragile we are. He continues in verse 19, for what happens, here's why you're like beasts, for what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beast is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath and man has no advantage over the beast for all is vanity. All go to one place, all are from dust and to dust all return. If you were with us earlier in Ecclesiastes, the preacher had us consider how the wise dies just like the fool. And if we thought it couldn't get any worse, in these verses, the preacher tells us we die just like the little piggies we turn into ham and hot dogs. We breathe the same air as them. And like any other animal, there will come a day when we will breathe our last will be put in a box, lowered into the grave and left there to rot and decompose. And the dirt we used to use to mold into sand castles or buildings or grow our plants in is the same stuff, the preacher tells us, that we're made up of. The same dirt worms eat, the same dirt that's thrown over our own coffins. I mean, just consider cremation literally being reduced to ashes, to dust, a pile of carbon, like any other organic thing that used to be alive. That's sobering. This is the final destination of every road, no matter how much we might dress it up or try to delay it. And we do try to delay it. It's why we decide to get in shape, take vitamins, eat healthy. It's why sitting at number four on the Amazon charts for most read nonfiction is a book called Outlive, The Science and Art of Longevity. And here's the blurb for the book. Wouldn't you like to live longer and better? In this operating manual for longevity, Dr. Peter Attia draws on the latest science to deliver innovative nutritional interventions, techniques for optimizing exercise and sleep, and tools for addressing emotional and mental health. It's a New York Times bestseller and has rave reviews from The Economist and Bloomberg. And I'm going to still read the book, but I can't help think, 
how this encapsulates our never ending quest to overcome death. And the truth is while we may increase the average life expectancy, we're merely kicking the can down the road. You and I, we cannot prevent dying. We can only postpone it. Now I get it. Three chapters in and it's dour. The preacher has beaten this horse to death. And my bet is we are tired of it. We're annoyed of the repetitive nature of this theme in Ecclesiastes. And yet I think it's intentional. It's very deliberate. The preacher is modeling how pervasive the reality of death should be, that it ought to permeate, linger, and color everything we see and do in life. The preacher talks so much about it because we think so little of it. That even when we're grossed out by roadkill on the street or mourning the loss of our dog, we ought to pause and reflect upon the brevity of life we have to reflect on our inevitable end. Preacher has one more thought in verse 21. He says, who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth. And don't be confused as if the preacher's confused. He's not questioning what happens after death. We've seen back in verse 16, he's expressed his firm conviction that God will judge. In this verse though, The preacher is merely highlighting another example of our limitation. There's no eyewitness report or empirical evidence for the afterlife. That by mere observation in science, we can't know with certainty what happens when we die. I mean, we're gone. We're no longer around. The preacher seals the case shut at the end of verse 22. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? Answer, Not you, surely not me. And therein we are confronted with our mortality, our smallness. That's the takeaway for this section. Be humble, be humble. Yes, questions are good. Curiosity shouldn't be stifled or completely eliminated, but we must also recognize the secret things don't belong to us. They belong to the Lord. God is not obligated to tell us everything. He is kind though to tell us enough. You see, we must never forget who we are before God. That God is on a whole nother level. He is in a separate category. As Paul says in 1 Timothy 1.17, to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Did you catch that? He is the only God. We are not. We are not the exception to creation. In fact, we're part of it. And more than being offended by this truth, we can be comforted. It means we don't have to pretend like we have it all together. It means we don't have to shoulder the pressure of playing God, mapping out every tiny detail of our lives or straining so hard to stave off death. It's out of our hands. Of course, eat your vegetables, go to the gym. But our main endeavor then as creatures is to be faithful to our creator, to steward and enjoy 
however much time our God has given our mortal bodies. And ironically, when we accept the limitations of our fleeting lives, then we possess the wisdom to live our fleeting lives to the fullest. Ironically, we only maximize our potential after we recognize that there is a ceiling, a cap to it. Our last point, in the meantime then, rejoice. In the meantime, rejoice. Verse 22, so I saw that there is nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. Not all limits are bad. You know, I don't cook a ton, but I know eggs are going to be overdone if you leave it frying on the pan too long. I know that cake is going to be burnt to a crisp if you crank that oven up to 800 degrees instead of 350. And you have to stay within the appropriate culinary limits to cook food without ruining it. Or consider the unofficial official practice sport pickleball. In order to play it properly, you have to do what? You have to stay in bounds. You got to abide by the rules. You can't step into the kitchen. You have to serve behind the line. But let's say you don't like this. You know, court feels too tiny, too restrictive. So you petition to have the lines moved further back. You write to the National Association of Pickleball. I don't know if that nerdy committee exists, but let's say they do. And you plead with them to make these changes official and the politely shut you down and deny your request because you're nobody. Now, what are your options? You can gripe. You can moan about where the lines on the court are drawn. You can waste time and throw a tantrum and refuse to play. Or you humble yourself. You humble yourselves, submit to the rules of the game, play within the lines to enjoy pickleball as it was designed. The preacher is showing us the lines, the lines that have already been drawn. God has designed life. He has set the boundaries. There is justice, but not perfect justice. We have time on earth, but it is not unlimited. And instead of exhausting ourselves, complaining, trying to game the system or extend the length of our lives, time would be better spent recognizing the limits and then enjoying life. And that's a more accurate translation because the word for work here is not specific to our careers or jobs. It's more generic and could be translated as activity. The emphasis then is on what we do from work at the office to the parties we attend, the TV shows we watch to how we serve at church, how we spend our money in everything. We can rejoice when we understand though life has its limits, it is still a precious gift. It is a lot given by God. If you've ever played poker, you know you got to play the hand you're dealt. And sometimes you hold aces and you can win a monster pot. Other times you're, you're left with terrible cards like a two and a seven. And whatever the situation, you have to adapt. You have to make do. Well, life is similar, but the good news is that it's not left to chance. It's not left to the luck of the draw. God is behind all of it. And he is wise and sovereign. And get this, he is good to you. 
accepting our lot, receiving our limits. It doesn't rob us of purpose. No, it concentrates it. It steers us in the right direction with laser focus. That we can approach everything, all activity in any season with the aim towards faithfulness. To handle what's been gifted from God instead of something to leverage and gain more than what God intends. I've heard it described like this. Good pleasures are like watermelons used to play soccer. They are good in themselves, but will splatter if we try to use them to score a goal. Rejoice in your lot, in your singleness, your office job, your relationships. Just don't crush them by stacking all your hope and identity upon them. Praxis, what are the watermelons in your life? Never thought I'd say that in a sermon. (laughs) But maybe the job you have isn't as bad as you think. It's put you in a position to carry conversation, to witness to non-Christians, while enabling you to do meaningful work, to pay rent. Maybe there are parts of your living situation that you can praise God for. Sure, you don't want to live with your parents or roommates forever, but in this season, God has allowed you to deepen your relationships, to save money so you can be generous towards others. Maybe your singleness is not a time to despise, but to relish. You have the bandwidth to study theology to dig deep into a new hobby. You can use your flexibility to serve others. It was the great reformer, Martin Luther, who allegedly said, if I knew that tomorrow the world would end, I'd still plant an apple tree. Do you get what he's saying? Life may be momentary, but there's still meaning in the moment. So in the meantime, enjoy the lot God has given you plant a tree, laugh it up with friends, do excellent work, share the gospel. God is making everything beautiful in its time. I know this section of scripture may not be the most riveting or inspiring. I mean, after all the preacher just blasts us, hey, there's gonna be injustice everywhere and then you're going to die. Not the most pleasant one-two combo. But the preacher isn't all doom and gloom so we crawl into the corner of a dark room and hug ourselves, he's showing us not every problem is supposed to be fixed. Sometimes we're just supposed to endure. And the sooner we embrace these limits, the sooner we're ready to embrace life. How can we be humble and hopeful in a world filled with injustice and death? Well, we have access to more of God's story than the preacher does because we know the gospel, that Christ has paved the way by dealing with both, both injustice and death, that at the right time, God sent his son to endure the greatest injustice by dying on the cross. And there he bore our punishment for sin so the offer of salvation could be extended to all. That by repentance and faith, we no longer have to fear judgment because Christ has paid for our wrongs. We no longer have to fear death because Christ has defeated it in his. We are robed in the righteousness of Jesus and we are 
given eternal life in Jesus. And there is a day approaching when time, as we know, will cease. The final grain of sand will slip through the hourglass and Jesus will usher in the fullness of his kingdom with perfect justice and everlasting life. And God will make all things new, all things right. And this season, this future one will have no turning or change or end. But in the meantime, right now, we show we believe it by living with humility and hope, trusting in the God of all seasons. Let's pray. God, it's the simple truths that encourage us, that comfort us, that you're sovereign, you're wise, and you're good. And though dark times may descend, though injustice may be rampant, though death may be a foe that we cannot thwart. It is in the midst of such circumstance that Christ shines brightest, that the gospel has revealed to us your answer through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And if we trust him, we are afforded hope and it humbles us to then live with joy, giving ourselves fully to you. Teach us, Lord, this. Help us to apply it on a daily basis. Use this community to foster this vision that we would be looking to you in all things. We thank you for your word, for this time to worship. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.